Alright everyone, welcome back. This week, Kayla got a chance to sit down with Mark Buny. Mark has been on a hot streak this year, winning the first six fraternities of the year he entered and around at the Ruby Buckle, with torn ligaments in his ankle. He is a multiple $100,000 slot race winner, old Forts Day fraternity champion, and year after year turns out consistent, confident winners. We were able to catch up with him between the Ruby Buckle and Royal Crown fraternity and loved his insight on keeping his fraternity colts confident and in winning form. This week's episode is brought to you by the REM mask from Expert Equine. Not very often do we see a new product that really makes a difference like this one can in a performance horse's life. For very little investment, the REM mask from Expert Equine helps horses sleep under artificial light that stays on in vet clinics and big event stall barns. They're easy to use and your horse will thank you. Visit XPERTEquine.com. All right, Mark, you're in the hot seat. This is The Money Barrel. This year, if you've paid any attention to the fraternity world, you have seen Mark Buny winning on JL Rock Lost to Sock, and I'm so excited to finally get a chance to talk to you. After every big win, I was like, God, I gotta talk to Mark. We gotta get a podcast set up, and then, I mean, he just kept winning. <laughs> so, <laughs> finally, we got it done. So, how's it been going? Well, obviously, it's been going great. Um, you know, it's really just kind of a fantasy kind of year. Um, you know, I never rolled into it with any kind of idea that this could happen, but with each and every race that goes by, I mean, it's just, I mean, you stand in cloud nine, just surprised that it happens again and surprised that it happens again. And before you know it, you're starting to think, gosh, you know, how far can this coat really go? So yeah, it's exciting. So last week you won the first round of the Ruby buckle, but tell us a little bit about the Ruby buckle. Cause you had to jump through some hoops to even make your runs. Isn't that right? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I was looking good going into it. I, I got stuck in, in a blizzard up in North Dakota on my way back from Washington from those maturities. So when I got back down here, we had a couple days to get ready for the Ruby Buckle. Uh, not too many, but anyhow, I was foolishly crawling down off of my pod of my horse trailer or crawling down the ladder and carrying a bag of feed. And I was trying not to break the bag open on the ground. So I turned halfway down the ladder and to drop the bag well my ankle gave out and made a really loud popping noise and so i thought i had broken my ankle um ran to the emergency to the urgent care center and found out it was not broke but i had torn all the ligaments in the outside of my ankle and so yeah when i um realized that had happened i started calling you know a friend of mine saying i think i'm gonna need you to run my horse i can't run my horse and of course, he was, I think, a little bit stressed, thinking, oh, my God, you're going to throw me on this horse that's been winning everything, and now you're going to make me look like a fool if I don't win. So, But I'm like, I I'm desperate. I, I need somebody to run that horse down the alley. So anyhow, I ended up trying to put my foot in the stirrup when we got there, you know, thinking, oh, I can just not put any weight on it. It'll be okay. But just the, the turn of the stirrup, um, you know, just pulling on my toe a little bit was excruciating. And so... I really didn't think I was going to be able to run down the alley. And so I just had to think as quick as possible and ended up having to rig a stirrup up um, with just hanging from a string so that it can turn any way that I needed it to, um, to get my foot in it in a position where it wouldn't hurt. Um, and then I spent the rest of the day trying to hunt down a magic seat because I thought there's no way I could catch my balance in that right-handed stirrup. And so um, I didn't want to slide off the, off the horse as he turned the barrels and kind of throw everything down the tube. So um, I just kind of rigged it all up and 
sucked up a little bit of the pain and made my run. And, um, you know, I felt like I was about maybe 70% of what I should be able to ride, but somehow that Colt still went out there and got the win on that first round. I was, I was truly mind blown that it actually happened. I mean, that was incredible because, you know, of course, everybody watched your first round and it's like, oh, to the lead again. And then I think I saw a little interview afterwards. I'm like, wait, he he can't even use one of his legs, barely? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of silly. You know, it's a little embarrassing because, you know, you want to be able to ride your best. You don't want to be riding in a magic seat. I mean, it just seems like, you know, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like when I get old, you know, older than I am, I guess. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's a, it's a little embarrassing, I guess, but, you know, I was more desperate to make sure I could run down that alley than, than worrying about, you know, the embarrassment of having to do all that and stuff. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody doing that with a stirrup. I don't think it's probably the safest thing in the whole world, but I needed to do something. And so we just made do and ran down the alley and luckily it worked out in round one. So It worked out. In round two, you still had a good run, right? Like... You placed pretty it high up there good. in the average. Yeah, um, and honestly, I felt better. Um, I had a PEMF treatment on my ankle, um, and it the pain wasn't as strong, and so I felt pretty good going into the second round, and I felt like he was a little sharper. I felt like he was stepping a little faster around his turns. I thought everything felt just a little sharper and a little faster, but then on his run home, I could feel him kind of easing up and kind of coasting part way mm-hmm. on me. And so I think that's where he lost his time. I mean, he ran a tick faster than he did in the first round, but it obviously wasn't enough to win the second round. We ended up six with, I'm still proud of him running a six that I, you know, since I couldn't be a hundred percent, but um, I think that's where he lost it. Cause I really, I didn't feel any flaws or anything in the pattern. And he felt like he was really bolder and pretty strong um, until that run home. So and how's your ankle doing now? When do you think you're going to be able to get it healed up, or you're going to be in this contraption well, for a while? I think I'm going to be in a little bit of trouble still next week at the Royal Crown when I get down there. But um, it's definitely getting better. I can walk on it a little bit better now. Um, it's starting to the swelling is kind of staying down, and I'm starting to actually see an ankle instead of just a big swollen mound there. So I, it's definitely getting better, but I think it's going to be quite a while before I can really step into a stirrup. Um, just the way it twists and stuff as soon as it twists a little bit oh my god it's excruciating so oh well it'll take a while but i'm gonna try to suck it up and try to get something done at the royal crown still so thankfully you and mo are a good team it- oh thank i'm telling you if that horse wasn't as honest and true to his job as he is i couldn't have made it work it wouldn't have worked with any other horse he's just he's just that honest about everything and so you know i can miss time things i can get to my horn sooner i can sit there like a sack of potatoes in the seat and he still just runs up there and just does his job and so i'm super thankful of that because like i said it wouldn't have worked with another horse that i had to handle a bunch so tell us about mo and you know how how his training went and walk us through this year a little bit well um the training was really pretty simple you know i i I got on him last year the first year that i went to uh, arizona um so last january and i stayed at jill lane's and um she had this colt standing in the pen i didn't really think anything of him um he kind of just looked like a big kind of a coarse horse at the time that i first saw him and um she was struggling a little bit with him and not sure you know how to progress with him and so she rode him on and off during the five or six weeks that we were there and um each time it was kind of a struggle and so i just kind of watched my friend john russell got on him a little bit and um was trying to do a few things and they just couldn't get anything figured out and so um jill was actually going to san diego for something and so i said would you mind if i ride him while you're gone and she said no go ahead she said see if you can figure anything out so i got on him and 
I just felt like the horse's confidence was not there at all. And he was um, reacting like every time he would do a little something wrong, it's like he knew it was wrong, but then he would react, you know, like he thought he was going to get into trouble. And so I just immediately stopped getting after him for anything that he did wrong. If he did it wrong at a lope, I put him back into a trot. I just forgave him for everything. And it was literally in about an eight day period where he went from not even being able to lope a full turn without popping leads or kind of jumping like sky jumping away from the turns a little bit to breezing a pattern. And we had videoed it and sent it down to Jill and she's, text back and just said you know oh my god he looks so good and so when she got home i said he really just needs to be in my barn and she's like you like him that much and i said yes i do so she said take him and so i went ahead and she delivered to me in march and um from that point on my whole goal was to just not get after him for anything just build his confidence let him tell me what he needs from me rather than me telling him what i need from him and um, it, it took a little time where he would like lope a full circle and not try to pick his head up and like run out of the circle. Mm-hmm. He had a kind of tendency to to be um, fresh, I guess you could call it and stuff, where he would lope about a, maybe a half a circle or two thirds of a circle and then he'd kind of stiffen his rib cage, pop his hind lead, pick his head up, and then he would just try to gas it and just kind of run down the arena a little bit. Not like a true runoff of anything of that nature but just like i don't know it was like he didn't understand to just stay in the circle stay relaxed but just over time i just kept asking him to do it asking him to do it asking him to do it and he finally just got it and then i learned from that point on i started doing some pasture rides um he is the kind of horse that craves to run so much that you just got to let him have it once in a while like even in the warm-ups during uh, the arizona fraternities there was times where i was the guy in the warm-up pen where everybody's like oh my god what is he doing he's out of control why is he running through everybody but that horse just has to go and sprint out a little bit and get that little edge off of him and the moment you finish doing that he'll go back in and just lope the quietest roundest softest circles and so i've just learned that he that's what he needs from me he needs me to allow him to have what he needs you know in his personality and and you know his physical desires and then uh, he's ready to work for me so i just learned that and that's kind of the philosophy that i kept during the whole year and i never pushed him i just let him pick the pace every place we went and did exhibitions and um it just worked out real good his confidence just started soaring and soaring and by the time we got to the fraternity, um, you know, the big breakthrough that we had was at the BFA. Honestly, we ran the first round of the fraternity there. And, of course, we're running against four-year-olds because he was coming into running as a five-year-old fraternity cold. And so um, we ran that first round and didn't do anything special. He made a you know decent attempt, but didn't clock super fast. So I called Jill Lane up the next day and I said, okay, I said, I need to ask for your forgiveness in advance because I said, this is going to be really good. It's going to be really bad. And she's like, oh my God, what are you talking about? And so I said, I, we have made no money. We're in the future fortunes, uh, fortunes round for the extra money. I said, we have one shot at getting to the finals and one shot at making any money here. So I said, I'm going to send him in there with everything he's got and he's either going to handle it or he's not. And he handled it 10 times better than I ever imagined. He hunted his barrel stronger. He turned stronger. He was more honest. I mean, he just came in. He ended up being the fourth fastest time getting into the finals. And um, 
ended up reserving the fortunes round for the future fortunes and um, ended up making like 17,000. And um, so it was a breakthrough where we realized he can handle the pressure. He craved it. And we didn't any longer had to just treat him like a colt. You could just send him in there like a rodeo horse. And that's, that's what I've done ever since. That's amazing because, I mean, it just sounds like he easily could have gone the other direction. Blown oh, up, yeah. doesn't want to do it, you know, but you said he's so honest and confident. But, like, that was cultivated over months and months and months of training when he easily could have been, like, not even being able to go around the pattern. Yes. Yep. He was – he's definitely one of those kind of horses that if the wrong person stayed on that horse or got on that horse – and wanted to control everything and wanted to, you know, beat him up for his little quirky things or, you know, even just kind of popping his hind leave. If somebody would have done that, they would have shattered his confidence for life and he would have never been what he is now. So, you know, I mean, that's the only part that I feel like I can take really the credit for because honestly, I feel like 95% of it is just him, you know, talented, wanting to do it, full desire, just an amazing horse. But, um, but I was just, I, I think, goodness that I have enough wisdom now to be smart enough to have just you know forgave him for everything and just let him build his confidence did you have a horse in the past that you did the opposite thing from to learn from oh gosh multiple horses because <laughs> you know, I'm thinking that I want to that I want to say you yeah. know where you just try to line them out and well my the, the last one I would have to say that really taught me the true meaning of, of sometimes it's the horses program that you have to go with um, in order to be successful was JL Twisted Rock. And I had won the 2019 BBR World Finals with him. But he was like one of those that he would run barrels. He was honest about it. He would try really hard every single time. Um, but he was really quirky. Like the, we found out that the dam had produced some very quirky individuals with several different studs. And so it was really all attributed to what she was producing not who she was bred to but they were all talented but like twisted rock would pick up the bit and run off with you just out of the blue for no reason none that i could think of um he would not practice barrels any longer as soon as if you felt like you were going to practice something with him he would saw up and if you got after him or took an over and under and whacked him down the hip he would just get mad and he would pick up the bit and run with you and just like some some crazy stuff that in my mind you should never allow but i also learned that he did not have the kind of self-preservation that most horses have and that if you did not meet him 50 50 and understand what he needed you were going to be in trouble and so i learned a big lesson from that horse and i think that's kind of where i got you know started with uh rock lost a sock was just you know figure out what they need from you more than what we need from the horses and I you know I think that's probably one of the wisest things that, that I've learned in the last you know four or five years is that it's not always what we need from the horses I mean obviously we have to start asking them for certain things but we have to pay better attention to what the horse needs from us and I think that's you know where the success has really come to the surface with actually both of those horses but especially Rockloft's sock. Yeah I think that is so wise and just such good advice because like I can as you're saying this I have a horse that does the whole hind leg switch, run off, you know, grab the bit, <laughs> yeah. won't lope a circle, and I've made the wrong decisions getting after them, and then it never works. And you know, because you shouldn't, you know, quote unquote, shouldn't allow that behavior. And then it's like, 
if you just kind of ignore it and work through it, I'm still not very good at it, but like <laughs> it, it, it really does be right. better for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. You know, it's, you know, we have this, this concept, especially as trainers that we have to put them in a form and a function and they have to do it correctly and accurately. And when we ask it and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's hard to let go of that kind of control and when you're, you know, picturing the product that you're trying to develop and that horse doesn't follow the guidelines to getting to that exact product, um, you know, we feel like we've got to take more control and, you know, discipline them more, that sort of thing. And um, I'm just learning that if you can teach them to love their job, you're a lot further ahead than you are at disciplining all the little tiny things that, you, you know, out of them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. And I mean, kind of, it, it doesn't necessarily sound like they're they're hotter or more nervous, just a little unsure of themselves. But do you kind of take that same approach with all your horses? I mean, or is there some that you might put a little bit more pressure on? Absolutely. They're, they're all individuals for sure. Um, you know, there's some that are going to be a little bit more headstrong and resistant. Like I've got one that's brave as can be like just naturally it's a Sirocco out of a out of a Meridot daughter and um he's kind of um ornery really and um a little bit headstrong and kind of wants to sass you a little bit it's all just kind of natural so I kind of take a little bit more of a disciplinary hand with him um not a lot but he's one that you can't really shake his confidence that much um it's just harder you know he stays more confident just because he's a little bit more of a bully i would say but um you know like rock lost his sock he was much more sensitive and i don't know if that's the thoroughbred side of him or what but he just he was just much more sensitive like you know you could hurt his feelings easy or you know break his trust in you so much easier and there's just some of those horses out there that they're just gonna either trust you or fight with you whatever they're gonna do so yeah i think it's an individual thing that you have to figure out how strong of a hand you need to have on them and and read the horse you know i mean if they take discipline very easy then you need very little discipline but some Mm -hmm. of them are just stronger headed and you gotta you know approach it that way too makes sense this year you won the first three fraternities in arizona right they were all on standard patterns Correct. All at the same place in Buckeye, Arizona, standard pattern. And then I was looking back, and you won last year's Greg Olson, too, right? Yes, correct. So what... That was on NFL draft. What do you think, like, I guess, how do you approach, like, running the horses on the standard patterns? Do you get a lot of um, time to exhibition on standard patterns down there, or is it just, like, they know their training, so it doesn't really matter? Um, that's, I really honestly think, you know, I teach the horses to execute the actual turn, like execute their rate spot a certain place, execute the actual position around the barrels. I don't pay attention to fences. Sometimes I'm training them in an arena with no fences. Sometimes they're in arenas with fences. Um, believe it or not, down south, I think, you know, when I lived up north in Montana, North Dakota, I assumed that they ran on standard patterns all the time down here because the weather's so nice. I thought, you know, they're outdoors. They got big arenas. They're running on standard patterns. Well, it is so rare to run a standard pattern down here. It's almost silly. Um, and then there's an awful lot of people down here. They hate running on standard patterns because they never see them. Yeah. I got more standard patterns when I lived up north than anywhere else. So um, <laughs> funny story. Last year, me and uh, my friend John Ressler had gone to Arizona You know, for those five weeks during those maturities. And the first weekend we were there, I think we were there maybe three days prior to that first maturity. 
we couldn't get a horse to even walk in the 17s on the standard. And we're, we both go home and we're looking at each other like, what is going on? I mean, we should be able to breeze into the 17s with these colts. I mean, we're just dumbfounded. So I'm like, well, we don't, we can't do anything. We just got to train them, make sure that they're doing their job. And what it came down to, honestly, was first of all, the horses needed a little time to settle into the different atmosphere. Secondly, you have to change your your mind frame on a standard pattern compared to those smaller, you know, indoor things where it's more closed in and you're bouncing off fences and stuff. So you have to be brave enough to run your horse full speed to the turns and trust that they're going to sit down and turn the barrels. And so that's where I really just kind of latched on. I just remembered from last year that you can't hold back. You can't go two thirds speed to the barrels. You know, it feels safer. But you've got to trust that when they're in full stride and running really hard, they're still going to come back to you and make the turn. And so it was easier for me this year simply because I kept that in mind. But last year we were we were definitely shocked on the first weekend because we just we, were, we hadn't been on standard patterns and it it took us a weekend to get brave. And by that second weekend we started running seventeen O's and seventeen ones and twos. So. Yeah, it was just a matter of getting ourselves comfortable in there, I think. That's why I asked, because in Colorado, I mean, surprisingly, unless you enter a pro rodeo, we don't have standard patterns. So I was going to Ruby Buckle, and I'm like, oh, I don't know how to run this far. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different mind frame, you know. I mean, it takes a lot more courage to run a standard pattern than it does to run a little, you know, trap indoors. And then mentally... I mean, obviously, you've you've won a lot on a lot of different horses over the years. But say we had a, a question from a listener, you know, on on a horse like JL Rock lost a sock. Obviously, you know, everybody's running to the fence to see him, um, and everything. Like, how do you stay mentally good to go when you are running horses of this caliber? Well, the biggest thing that I can always tell you um, is make sure that you put your time in on the horse. Uh, you know, you don't want to go to a barrel race knowing that you only rode once that week or twice that week. Put your time in. Make sure that you've done your, your homework. And that will be the biggest boost of confidence that you can have when you get to the barrel race. At the point when you start competing and they start competing at the level like he is and start winning, um, you know, a lot of people that haven't gotten to there don't realize that there's a whole nother level of pressure. Like you say, when people are running to the fence to, to watch a horse like that run, they're expecting things. Um, you know, there's always going to be those other people that want to like see you fail as much as there's that, you know, those people that want to see you succeed, but you just have to put that all out of your mind. And honestly, I guess I feel like it's a privilege, uh, for me to display a horse like that. And so it's more of a comforting feel to me rather than a pressure thing of oh my god i've got to do this or i'm going to look like a fool i never feel that way i usually just feel like wow it's amazing that people have you know latched on to watching this horse like they have and that this horse is really shining like he is and it gives me more a sense of pride than anything else and so i feel more confident that way and it really helps with a horse like this because when they do when they are to that level they're running like an open horse you know they're not you're not having to position them here and slow them down here and do all these things that you do with a lot of the colts so honestly what i tell myself is i'm on a rodeo horse i'm on a finished rodeo horse riding like one don't ride him like a green fisherty colt because we do a lot of colts that way but if you ride a a, a horse like him that way you're just going to get in their way 
And so I just remind myself that, you know, I don't care. I'm running against these other fraternity horses, but I've got myself an open rodeo horse. And so I pick him up and I send him in there like an open rodeo horse. And so um, it gives me more confidence. I kind of take the pressure off myself. It puts me in a better mind frame of running him, you know, where he can do his job and I can do my job instead of me trying to help him do his job. I think that's a great way to put it, like a great perspective. It's it's an opportunity to display him. So Exactly. No yep. not not that there's no pressure, but like <laughs> maybe a little less. Yeah. Well and you learn that the you know, that's the part of what I feel like the wisdom that comes with, you know, having done this for a lot of years and had your ups and downs, your successes and your failures, is that you learn how to bottle up the the nerves and the energy and use it to your advantage you know um if you don't have any kind of nerves at all or any kind of you know energy flowing through you you're not going to be sharp enough you know on a on a top caliber horse like that anyways so you know you just have to learn how to use it for your to your advantage and how to um release it when you need to release it you know to help your run rather than letting it overwhelm you and you know, block you from doing what you're actually, you know, supposed to be doing up there. Have you ever slept with the lights on? Could you do it for several nights in a row and still perform at your very best? Have you ever wondered about your horse? Unfortunately, at most big events, the lights must stay on all night long. But there is a solution. REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. The REM mask blocks artificial light, allowing for optimal rest and recovery. My name is Bo Whitaker. I'm a veterinarian at Brazos Valley Equine Hospital in Slato, Texas. The whole goal of the REM mask is to prevent sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation is gonna to lead to significant behavioral problems in horses. There are other things as far as stress goes, uh, gastric ulcers, a lot of things that can be secondary to the stress that you, you can see from sleep deprivation. So arrive at the show prepared with the revolutionary REM Restorative Equine Mask from Expert Equine. I love that. And let's let's talk about your background a little bit. Um, usually I start with that, but I was so excited to talk about Mo. I just kind of <laughs> dug into Mo. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and when you got into barrel racing and training. Well, it, ever since we were young kids, we had horses. Um, uh, as kids, we never really had our own horses. Our parents had some horses and we'd kind of get on them and, you know, walk around, trot around, get led around, that sort of thing. Um, but when I was probably, I would say in early high school is when we kind of had a little bit of more free reign. I did a little bit of 4-H. Um, my mom's the first one that got me into the barrel racing. Um, she wasn't really doing any barrel racing at the time, but she had done, I think, some amateur rodeos when we were real young. I don't really remember those, but I just remember a picture sitting on the table and I always thought, oh, wow, my mom's a rodeo girl. <laughs> and so anyways, it was, it was exciting to me. Um, literally her training of me and of course you know i realize now that younger people just don't have the kind of concepts where you can use a lot of details but it was go up to the barrel slow down come in wide and then come out close and that was what she taught me to do which is really the basic concept of going around a barrel turn yep. and so that's all i did i didn't know anything else and um when it came to a point where I tried to do a little bit of team roping with some friends, um, but I 
couldn't afford cattle. You know, we didn't have a family that had cattle and the, the people that I guess I kind of had to be around in order to rope with just weren't my kind of people. And so um, I wasn't real comfortable. So I drifted away from that, ended up going to, after I graduated high school, I went to uh, the horse racing tracks around Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, and then um, worked for a, a guy that was a racehorse guy in South Dakota at his ranch for a while. And so um, I did that for about four years on and off. And finally, at a particular point, I decided I really wanted to get away from that because I was so tired of the seven days a week, you know, dust till dawn sort of deals. And um, so I got out of that, got into the hotel business, um, was in the hotel business on and off for 15 years. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. But in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do the barrel horse thing. And, you know, I always had one horse, you know, going at any particular time, but I didn't have any client horses or anything. I was up in Montana and North Dakota at the time. And, you know, they just didn't have the money people up there that would keep a horse in training with you for one or two or three years, depending on what you had going on. So it wasn't really an option up there. Um, so anyways, I just trained, you know, one or two of my own over the years and uh, just learned from a lot of people. Um, the only clinic I ever did was a private clinic that me and a friend went to at Ju- Judy Millimackie's place. And um, I learned a lot just from watching her teach my friend um, different stations and, you know, what to look for and how to handle horses and that sort of thing. And so that was the only clinic that I did. Um, I bought a Sharon Camarillo book. Um, that was kind of my first Bible, if you will. Um, just to kind of give me structure how to train a barrel horse and that sort of thing. And so I followed that really to the letter for a long time and then incorporated uh, Judy Millimackie's station work um, with my program. And I'm telling you, just a ton of trial and error over the years, you know, figuring out what worked, what didn't work. Um, I had some, you know, success at certain levels. And so it kind of starts you down the right road and you start developing the feel of one that was really good and then you kind of look for that same feel in the next one and the next one and each one that that won with you or or gave you some success would kind of burn a little memory in your feel and that sort of thing and um, and so you just like look for that in the next one and start recognizing it a little bit more and stuff and so you get better at picking out prospects when you recognize the feel that the really good ones have in them and uh, so yeah that was that was kind of my process and I ended up you know quitting the hotel business in 2009 I suppose I moved down to Texas finally and uh, finished the last year there working in the hotel business and decided to go ahead and uh, make a break and do the fertility thing full-time and that's what I've been doing ever since that's I mean that's so incredible because it's not not truly self-taught but kind of self-taught because, you know, yeah, you went to I the really honestly and... feel like I was pretty much self-taught. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, that's kind of, you know, the, a lot of people learn different ways. A lot of people learn by somebody telling them what to do, showing them what to do. I learn a ton by watching people. And mm-hmm. um, I can take some things and go try them at home and, you know, see if they work for me, if they don't work for me. And a lot of the stuff I can just, you know... Uh, when I go to the barrel races, like to a lot of the fraternities and stuff, I'll spend a lot of time over watching the practice pen more than I'll be over there watching the competition pen. Cause that's where you learn what, where the people's text techniques are. And then, you know, if you watch them there and then you watch them in the competition pen, you figure out pretty fast what works and what doesn't work. And um, you just got to pay close attention and know what you're watching, you know? So um, I always tell people, if you're going to go there, go to the practice pen. You're going to learn a lot more than watching the barrel pen. Yeah, see how people warm up, see how people exhibition. Mm-hmm. and 
Um, exactly. What was your first big breakout horse? Um, I would have to say I had this one called uh, Miracle Money Spender, and I fraternity him a little bit. It was just up in the Montana area. Um, I think I may even take him take him over to Washington. Um, he didn't win me a whole lot of money. I want to say probably in the oh maybe fifteen thousand range at most, something like that. But then I I sold him for I think thirty two five. That was like huge for me at the time. And he was the one like he ran with um, Hat D Doc that Barbara Merrill ran years ago. Okay. And so I knew he was a high caliber horse, but that was the first one that I felt like was truly competitive and successful. And then after him, the what I call my best, I guess you could call it breakthrough horse, was um, uh, MNV Let Me Run, and I called him Tigger. And he, I actually got him for a client through the Billings Livestock Sale in Billings, Montana, and ended up where she wanted a horse that I had in tra- that I was training of my own, and so I ended up trading her out of that horse, and he turned out to be the most amazing horse ever. Like I won over thirty thousand with him just doing little local MBHA jackpots. He won probably five or six saddles for me. Um, he's the one that actually bankrolled me in order to move down to Texas and kind of get started down here. So um, I owed a lot to that horse, and he was just phenomenal. Um, he won all kinds of stuff for me. So that was my big breakthrough horse. And as far as faturities go, BB French Moonbug was the very first faturity coat that I started with down south where nobody knew me whatsoever. And he caught people's attention pretty fast. And it wasn't long after starting to run him that I started getting phone calls of people wanting me to train horses and, you know, people I didn't know or anything. I wasn't sure, you know, if things were going to take off down here or not. But that horse put me on the map pretty fast and, and got a lot of recognition for me. And I've had business ever since. So I, I remember he'd be his my name. Start off horse down here. Yeah, I remember his name. And then you've yeah, had the big old Palomino horse. Yep. Um, you know, horses like BT Buddy Stinson and IRA mm-hmm. Grand Victory. Um, you know, those type of horses when you're, you know, running for like the big slot races or anything. Um, t- tell us about some of those wins that you've had. Well, you know, the up until the time that I had IRA Grand Victory, I had I had won some rounds of faturities and barrel races, but I'd never won a faturity, and I had been doing it for a little while, and so um, my very first big, I guess you could call it a faturity win, was one of the $100,000 races, and IRA Grand Victory handed that to me, and um, it's crazy to think that, a, that that kind of a win was your icebreaker. Um, as soon as I won that with her, I ended up winning the second hundred thousand um, dollar race, the Lance Gray's Pro Classic, with her, and then the owner sold her immediately, and I never saw her again. And so um, I basically continued on with BT Buddy Stinson, who I had that same year, and he had won one round at the at the juvenile, and so I knew he was very very capable as well. And honestly, between the two horses, I felt like he was the better horse of the two. Um, nobody else thought that because the other horse won the $200,000 races but I knew this one was just kind of behind her a little bit and so he went on to win the BBR Faturity Old Fort Days Faturity, the Fizz Bomb um, there's a couple of the things I think that he won on there for me he qualified me for the for my first American Rodeo semifinals um, it, it was just one of those kind of deals where it's like once that ice was broken it seemed like it was so much easier to get to that 
to that win, you know, and so it just, it seems to come easy. It, it, it flows. Um, it seems like in ups and downs, like when you're winning, it seems easy to win. When you're struggling, it seems like you can never get to the win. It, it just gets frustrating. But once you kind of take a breath and just start letting things happen, it, it comes together a lot easier. I don't think I realized that they, those horses were the same year. Yeah. Yeah, they sure were. That went from no winning to a lot of winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We ended up, I want to say it was close to about 300000 that year that, that I had won in the futurities between the two. Um, of course, you know, 204000 of that was on Ira Grand Victory just in literally two runs that I made on her. I mean, I made a few other runs and stuff, qualified her for the AQHA final, or yeah, the AQHA finals and stuff. But, um, but yeah, it was it was a big year for me that year. That's, um, that's incredible. That's so cool. And, you know, just, just being able to hop from different styles like that. You, you know, you mentioned the owner of IR, a grand victory soldier, um, kind of part of it when you ride for outside people, but I know you have some clients like Jill Lane that you've been riding for a very long time for, um, what would you say to those that are like trying to get into training for others? Like what makes a good working relationship between like an owner and a trainer and you know, what, what do your owners expect of you and what do you expect of your owners? Well, um, and that's a good question because a lot of people tend to just want to go with whoever's winning. They want to just shove their horses in the hands of whoever's winning. Mm -hmm. And although that might make some sense, um, it doesn't make a good relationship. And so you really need to find somebody that has the same kind of mind frame as you do. Like, you know, my mind frame is I want to create the best product I can that's going to last years after their maturity year. Um, if I get somebody that wants me to push a horse no matter what, doctor them up, block anything that hurts them and just get fraternity paychecks and they don't care what happens to them at the end of the fraternity year, I will not ride for a person like that. Mm -hmm. um, I want that horse, you know, I treat everything like it's my own money and my own horse. And so if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I'm not going to spend their money on it. And if I have an investment in a horse, I'm not going to ruin my investment. So I sure as heck am not going to ruin somebody else's investment. So I'm not going to push one past, you know, the point that they're ready for. Um, so I look for people that understand that and understand it might take a little more time, understand that not every horse is going to make a fraternity horse. And sometimes they may make a fraternity horse, but they'll make a five-year-old instead of a four-year-old. Um, they've got to understand that and they have to trust the fact that I am reading the horse right and that I'm you know, using good judgment on what I decide to do with the horse. Um, the one thing, you know, I've had owners in the past that want to really micromanage the little details and it gets overwhelming and the moment that your trainer feels completely untrusted is the moment that they stop working as hard for you it's important to find people that match what your goals and what your intentions are for the horse and you know through the year and it's important to you know if you're somebody who is really doing it for a living and you plan on going to a lot of fraternities you need to have people that are that financially can stay behind that because it's not a it's not a cheap business to be in at all um, when you get a winner, you are consider yourself blessed because those are you know few and far between as far as the overall picture goes. And so you've got to be prepared to just enjoy the ride, enjoy the success when it comes, um, but understand that not every race is going to be successful. And 
um, one of the most important things that, you know, I tried to tell everybody, owners and fellow trainers and everything is that, you know, neither success or failure is ever determined on a single barrel race. Well, that's some good advice to round off this episode. Unless, of course, you're subscribed to The Money Barrel on Patreon.com or the Patreon app, where you can gain immediate access to about 20 more minutes with Mark and a lot more bonus content for $5, the cost of a single exhibition a month. I want to give a big thank you to Mark for spending some time with us, and a big thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in each week. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, REM Masks by Expert Equine. Don't wait until you get to the event and wish you had a mask. Add it to your packing checklist, a staple item to have in your trailer when hauling. There are so many benefits that come from a well-rested horse at an event. Go to Expert Equine's Facebook page and tell them how it helped your horse. Remember to check out and shop their website, xpertequine.com. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.